0: such an appropriate song, as we turn our attention to God's Word. Um, If you are new, or this is your first time at Praxis, welcome on behalf of our fellowship ministry here at Praxis. We are so thankful that you've joined us. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Lighthouse, and I oversee the Praxis ministry, our young adult singles group. And today, Uh, Well, the day has finally arrived, my friends. Uh, Tonight, we begin our sermon series on dating. And so it's been a long time coming. I was reflecting on this in my 15-ish years of ministry. I have never done a preaching series on dating. And to lay out all my cards, that's not because I've thought the topic pointless or I've tried to avoid it, Uh, maybe just a little avoiding. But the truth is, In the grand scheme of things, dating in actuality is just a small part of life. And I know it may not feel that way for some of you, but coming from an old guy, I can confidently say, I don't remember much about my own dating experiences. And so that's probably not the best way to start a dating series. But before you write me off, let me explain myself, as well as to tamp down some of the significance we assign to dating. And so, yes, Dating, I acknowledge, can be important, but it is not ultimate. In fact, the reason I haven't preached a series on dating is kind of like why I haven't done a series on picking a major or negotiating a job offer. I have preached on work because a bigger view, a proper understanding of work, should then trickle down into the details, right? How we go about choosing a major or negotiating a job offer as a Christian. So this similar concept for dating. I've preached on marriage because when we have a clear view of the bullseye, when we know then what we're shooting for, then we understand where dating should be headed. And listen, for the Christian, for the Christian, there is an even bigger target than marriage itself. It's why we did a miniseries on the glory of God, because we need to zoom out and see the greatest purpose in life is not dating our crush or even having a happy marriage. Our greatest purpose in life is living for the glory of God. And when He is front and center, when God and His glory become the highest ambition of our life, it will inform and impact everything beneath, including how we approach, handle, say, our marriage, dating, friendships, and singleness. With that disclaimer made, I do think a dating series is appropriate and helpful for our group uh, because many of you are in an age where the majority of your peers or friends are seriously considering marriage or taking steps in that direction. And as a core staff, our leadership here at Praxis, we also noticed that there are more people dating in our fellowship group. So we felt like now was a good time to wrestle and struggle through this topic together as a ministry. We obviously can't cover everything in our dating series, and that's okay because we can continue the discussion after we're done. In fact, there are so many good resources available online. Uh, If you don't know, Praxis has done a dating series twice before, in 2017 and in 2019, but I guess you guys want more of this stuff. Um, So here we are. Now, most of these messages can be downloaded from our church website. I mean, I was tempted just to come up here and play those sermons over the sound system and just be a mannequin or something like that. Uh, I won't because while much of the content may be the same, a lot has changed for dating in just three years. So let me go ahead from the outside and provide a roadmap for our series. We're going to dedicate a total of five weeks, five weeks to considering Christian dating by examining what the scriptures have to say about singleness, marriage, husbands, and wives. The fifth week will hold a Q&A, so if you have any questions throughout the series, you can actually text them into a number. It's provided there. Um, we'll keep it anonymous, but you can text. We'll have it up every single week. If you have questions pertaining to this particular message or the following week's message, feel free to text your questions in, and we'll try to answer those that are more prominent and relevant. Um, but we embark on this adventure tonight by studying what the Bible has to say about singleness. And maybe that kind of catches you off guard. You know, you're thinking to yourself, uh, we date so that we aren't single, and Um, I'm also aware that most dating series start with marriage and save a message for singleness at the very end. And so maybe you're also questioning my motives. You know, is this just to be different a contrarian? Is this guy just trying to be cool? Um, Maybe a little. And maybe you're still confused. You know, like I showed up for a dating series. Was I duped into coming? Did I get bamboozled? And yes, you did. Um, No, I'm still kidding, a little. But before you complain about this bait and switch tactic... Uh, I need to explain why we're starting with singleness. Um, And to explain, let me illustrate. You know, you can't teach someone how to play the game of soccer unless they first know a few things, the basics, right? Until they know how to run and have some level of hand-eye coordination. Well, it comes to dating, we cannot get ahead of ourselves and jump straight into relationships until we understand what we are to do with our singleness. If we are foggy about God's design for us as individuals, well, we're only going to make a mess when we pair up as couples. And so a proper and biblical grasp of singleness is foundational because here's the truth. We won't all get married, but we will all be single at some point in life. And those are the terms that the Bible uses, and that's what we will be sticking with. That regardless if you're dating, engaged, if you're not married, you are single. Now, one last note before we get going. I know that there are a lot of people in here um, who have mixed reaction to this series. You know, maybe you're a little apprehensive about having to study what the scriptures have to say about marriage, singleness, etc., or even upset to hear a message on singleness itself. It just reminds you of how lost and lonely you feel. Perhaps it reopens a wound from a breakup, or just deepens your disappointment, frustration that you're not dating when your friends seem to be getting married left and right. And I want to say, I get it. You know, those pains, those fears are very real. Not all churches have done a good job in ministering to singles, and I'm sorry for any hurt you've experienced because you have felt marginalized. But I also want you to hear me clearly. If you are single, You're not some second-class citizen or incomplete person. We need to do a better job at reestablishing the dignity of singleness. And listen, no one, no one is more adamant about this than God himself. And we can see it in the pages of Scripture. So my hope is that as we dive into God's Word, we will examine this, and then we will have the humility to trust that God knows best. whether single or married, no good thing does he withhold. Okay, I think I've done enough introduction and housekeeping to finally get into the Bible. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7 tonight. Go ahead and turn there. As you do, let's pray before we continue. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is powerful, that your word is clear, Lord, that your word guides us, and it is relevant even for issues and topics that seem foreign to the content of Scripture, you provide us with wisdom. Lord, you provide all that is necessary for life and godliness, and we pray that as we are spurred towards that direction, it would help us to be thoughtful and engage with how we handle our singleness, that we might be found faithful that you might continue to prune and make us more and more like Christ. That we would see that singleness is not something to be despised or to be ignored, but to be stewarded in a way that would magnify Christ, in a way that would honor you, in a way that would cause us to grow in his likeness. And so we pray for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a brief preview for tonight. We're going to work our way through parts of this passage and what it teaches us on singleness before closing with some application at the end on dating, okay? So that'll probably be the general pattern for our series. We'll look at a text on marriage before drawing some implications for dating and so on with the other uh, messages. So hopefully by now you're in 1 Corinthians 7. Some background info for this letter you know, a good chunk of this book is actually a back and forth between the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul himself. So it's kind of like a Q&A where these Christians are asking the Apostle to address and elaborate on various issues that they're encountering. You know, when to cease associating with the immoral, how to settle legal disputes between believers, what to do with meat offered to idols. And that's why chapter 7 leads off with a quotation in verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, you Corinthians, you wrote this, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So we discover in this chapter, Paul turns his attention to their questions concerning sex, marriage, and singleness. Now what we have to realize is the Corinthians lived in an over-sexualized culture. And so instead of taking a balanced approach These believers were too reactionary. They swung the pendulum too far the other way, deciding the only way to counter the society's promiscuity was to say, no sex, no sex for anyone, married or not. And Paul responds now in verse two. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's telling the Corinthians, Paul is telling the Corinthians There's nothing holy moly about abstaining from physical intimacy in the bounds of marriage. God designed sex to be enjoyed within the confines of a covenant union. And so it is right and good for married people to have sex. Now at this point, I know what you're thinking. This is the worst sermon on dating ever. You're just telling us that married people should have sex. But the reason I bring this up is to highlight a perpetual trend throughout chapter 7. Paul is going to go to great lengths to correct a lot, of warped under, a lot of warped understandings, not only on sex and marriage, but also singleness. The apostle is going to clarify some misconceptions that we might have, which then brings us to our first point. In verses 6 to 8, Paul teaches on the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness. Follow along, uh, continuing in verse 6, Paul says... Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good, it is good for them to remain single as I am. I want you to notice Paul's ringing endorsement for singleness. He is... at verse six, on the verge of commanding it, but he softens his stance because he he knows he doesn't have the authority to. And so Paul can't overstep. He backpedals to make a concession. If it were up to him, he would charge singleness for everyone. Just consider that. If everyone took Paul's recommendation, if everyone's single, the human race would be over, right? No more babies, no future you, no future me. Though not realistic or plausible, this thought experiment just highlights how much Paul esteems singleness. In fact, he is very forward with his conviction. In verse 27, you can glance there, he frames marriage as not being free and singleness as freedom. It's as if he talks singleness up so much, he has to tell the singles, don't worry, it's not a sin if you decide to marry. And finally, Paul summarizes in verse 38. Just jump there real quick. If you marry, he tells the Corinthians, you do well. But if you don't, you do even better. Let that sink in. Between marriage and singleness, Paul gives the slight nod, the slight edge to singleness. Back to verse 8 in our passage. The apostle states it in unequivocal terms. It is good, it is good to remain single. And my guess is we have a hard time sharing Paul's sentiment because we have been taught or we believe the exact opposite, that it is not good to remain single. And this was certainly the opinion of Paul's audience. You see, both historically and culturally, marriage was a sign of blessing, offspring an expression of God's favor. After all, you'll recall in Genesis 3, the divine mandate in the garden was what? To be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. In the Old Testament, infertility and singleness were viewed as contra God's plan, as indicative then of his judgment. But when Jesus shows up, Identity and value are no longer tied to marital status. Identity and value are tied to Christ. Paul is redeeming singleness. It's not bad. It's actually good. And as elementary as this is, I think some of us need to hear this. Because we can relate with the pressures that these Corinthians are feeling about singleness. Our culture is not very different. Our culture preaches a similar message. The caricature is that something must be wrong if you're single. If you haven't found a spouse by a certain age, well, then you must be awkward or unattractive. Our parents don't help the situation when they pester. You know, why aren't you dating yet? Even at church, at times, whether intentional or not, church has presented an imbalanced view of marriage and singleness where one is elevated and ideal, and the other is plan B. Singleness becomes a problem to solve. But you need to hear this. That is not biblical. That is not what the scriptures teach. And this might not be anything novel or revolutionary, but I think we really need to evaluate where we're getting our cues from. Who are the loudest voices speaking and shaping our views? because Paul, Paul is the rowdiest cheerleader for singleness. Singleness, he says, is good. It's not God's punishment, but a present, a gift, as the apostle calls it in verse 7. A gift. Now, Christmas is around the corner. It's kind of wild. But there is a popular Christmas game I'm sure all of us are familiar with. It's the White Elephant Gift Exchange. And some gifts unwrapped are wanted, right? coveted by everyone, like a nice ceramic mug or a gift card. They get stolen the fastest. But then let's be real. There are other gifts. Other gifts that aren't quite as popular. And once someone unwraps, say, a used deodorant or a gag gift, they know they are doomed. right? They are going to be stuck with that present forever because no one's going to take it from them. This happened to me at my previous church. We were playing White Elephant, and I opened the gift only to discover it was a clip-on man bun. (laughs) So that's a whack gift, right? I got jacked, and that's why I no longer go to that church. (laughs) Just kidding. But I think we can adopt the same attitude towards singleness. And Paul says, here's a gift, and we say, no thank you, Paul. Someone please take this away. We fear that we will be doomed, stuck with a present no one wants. That's why when we speak of singleness as a gift in our Christian circles, it's often in what? In a deep, ominous tone. Like, I have the gift. (laughs) I have the gift of singleness. And what do we really mean by that? Oh, no, I'm cursed. But Paul here is clearing the air First, he's showing us this gift is not necessarily permanent on earth, but it will be in eternity. We need to know these things. We need to have a proper theology for our singleness. See, everyone has the gift of singleness until they are married. Everyone is single at least once in life. Some of us will be single twice or multiple times if we have spouses that pass. As one author put it, we shouldn't think of singleness as a temporary state before marriage; rather, marriage is the temporary state before eternity. And Jesus said it himself. When the Sadducees attempted to show how ridiculous the afterlife would be, they tried to trap Jesus with a question. Matthew 22. They approached Jesus, and say, "Okay, if a wife remarries a bunch of times," after her husband dies each time. Well, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? In Matthew 22, 29, 30, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Do you hear that? Praxis, do you know the scriptures and the power of God? What makes resurrection, what makes heaven so great, so splendid, is not whether you will be married or not. What makes heaven great is not what we're going to be doing or where we will be. What makes heaven so great is the who. Who will we be with and all we will enjoy with him. And therefore, both earthly marriage and earthly singleness are reminders of this greatest and ultimate reality. Marriage reminds us of our future union with Christ. Singleness reminds us we don't need to wait to experience that. We can experience this union now. Where earthly marriage is a picture of the promise of Christ, singleness can be a picture of the sufficiency of Christ, that he's enough. Second, Paul teaches this gift is not peculiar but practical. Not peculiar, but practical. And by peculiar, I mean unusual or special. Some people have over-spiritualized the gift of singleness, placing it in the ranks of spiritual gifts like teaching and administration. But if you examine those passages dealing with spiritual gifts, the charismatics, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, Paul never actually mentions singleness. Yet look at how Paul sets up the discussion in our passage, right here in verse 7. He says, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Seems to imply you have either one or the other, right? And contextually, the apostle is talking about the gift of marriage that some have and the gift of singleness that others do. In other words, There's nothing mystical, per se, where the Holy Spirit is bestowing a special gift. It is more about the station in life and the opportunities that you are afforded in this season. It is practical, not charismatic. A parallel that I could think of was like the gift of education. You know, when you were in high school or attending college, your focus was to be a student and to learn. It was a station, an intense season in life where you made friends, joined clubs, sports teams, all the while being given the opportunity to get an education. Nothing divinely enacted by the Holy Spirit, and yet a gift nonetheless from God. But since graduating, you no longer have access to the same opportunities. You can't run for homecoming king. You can't live in the dorms or take final exams, at least not without being really creepy, right? So singleness is a practical gift where we are afforded particular opportunities accessible to us in this unique season of life. As we will see in the second point, once you're no longer single, certain opportunities are no longer available to you. Now, here's the other thing about practical gifts. Maybe after hearing all this about how singleness is good, singleness is a gift, we assume that we have to like it. Well, we don't. But we can grow, and we should grow and learn to appreciate these gifts as beneficial. For example, the Bible also talks about the gift of suffering or the gift of giving, giving. Now, I would bet none of us were initially eager to receive these gifts with open arms. Suffering as a gift? What kind of twisted joke is that? And giving? I have to give my resources to others? Is this some sort of Ponzi scheme or scam? But what happened? We learned. We learned how they were for our benefit. That suffering strengthens our faith. Giving blesses us because we get to participate and enjoy blessing others. So we trust God has our best interests in mind, even in the gift of singleness. And this is what Paul transitions to in our second point. From the gift of singleness to the goal of singleness. The goal of singleness. We're going to drop down to verse 25 for context sake. Picking up there, Paul writes, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, Has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. This is a strange set of verses of exhortation. But the key to understanding all this is in verse 29. Paul says the appointed time has grown very short. The apostle is putting everything in perspective. He plots our relationships against the backdrop of eternity. Married or single, we should not be paralyzed by our marital status. We should not be consumed with this, When we live in light of eternity, when time is precious, it has a way of sharpening priorities and exposing what truly matters, what is really significant, what the goal of singleness should be. Resuming in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. At the end of this section, Paul points at the goal of singleness, undivided devotion to the Lord. At the start of this section, Paul reveals the obstacles to this very goal. He says, anxieties. And in between, Paul explains how it happens. As finite creatures, we all have 24 hours in a day. We all have a limited amount of mental real estate. And it's just facts. The more people in our lives, the less resources to go around. This is especially true in marriage. Marriage is a huge blessing, but it also doesn't come without a huge price tag. Committing to someone means adding another person to the equation. Immediately, our interests are half. It's simple math. Instead of focusing solely upon the Lord, you have another person, your spouse, to consider. And if you throw in kids into the mix, well, things get more complicated. And I can testify to this. You know, when I make decisions, I have to factor in my wife and my kids. I can't make purchases without being mindful of how it impacts our budget. I usually can't invite people over spontaneously or go grab dinner without checking calendars. I can't choose to watch the latest blockbuster on Netflix because my kids, my kids want to watch Bluey. By your blank stares, I can tell you have no idea what I'm talking about because you've never seen a cartoon about a family of talking dogs from Australia. And even golly pursuits, even golly pursuits require more thought and planning. I can't just decide on a whim to pack up my bags for a missions trip. As a family man, it may be a great opportunity, things done for the Lord, but I need to consult my other lords, lowercase l. I have to check with Lord Barry to make sure it's okay, and she's willing to hold down the fort. If She gives me the green light. Sometimes I have to check with my kids, mini Lord Barry, Madison, my daughter, and mini, mini Lord Barry, Everett, my son. But when you're single, there are not as many bosses or hurdles for an undivided devotion. Now, please don't get me wrong. I love my family. Being married and a dad enables me to minister in different capacities, just not the same ones as when I was single, not the same ones that are afforded to you. And that's not an excuse for married and families from devoting themselves to the Lord. But there are unique advantages to being single. That's undeniable. You know, you can invest in more friendships, fellowship over lunch. You can sign up for any shift for Feed My Starving Children or participate in a book study with other young adults. You are probably better suited to lead the charge for a new ministry or join a church plant. And I'm not enumerating these possibilities because Praxis is doing such a poor job. I know I'm preaching to the choir. Some of the most faithful servants come from this group, and I'm so encouraged to see how many of you are zealous, sold out in pursuing the Lord and loving others. So I just want to rally behind you and continue to encourage you. Use your freedom well. You decide how to spend your money and time. You choose what to read and watch, how to serve. But there is also a danger to this kind of freedom your interests can be divided over the wrong things. Your devotion can be to something other than the Lord. And I think two of the biggest pitfalls to singleness are discontentment and selfishness. Discontentment and selfishness. Or as Pastor Kim has said, singleness is hated or wasted. Worse, it is both. You see, some of you are so preoccupied with your misery, with hating your singleness, it has stunted your growth, prevented you from ministering effectively. You have traded free evenings to meet up with someone, to read the word for late night sessions, to grumble about your singleness, or just to stew in bitterness. Instead of being devoted to the Lord, discontentment has distanced you from him. Others of you love your singleness, You cherish it, but for all the wrong reasons. You love it because you love yourself. Your free evenings are packed with what restaurants you want to try, what events you're willing to show up to, all the people who you want to hang out with. To be blunt, it's your way or the highway. And instead of maximizing your singleness in service of God and others, singleness becomes an occasion to be selfish. And what we fail to realize is what is detrimental in singleness is just as detrimental in dating and in marriage, if not more. Discontentment and selfishness are often the source of so much strife and conflict in relations. And I don't think I need to prove that to you. Just consider your own fights, your own disputes with your friends, bickerings with your parents or siblings, I'm pretty sure they can be traced back to discontentment or selfishness. Listen, if you cannot steward your singleness well, it is either arrogance or ignorance that makes you assume you can steward a relationship with another. If you want to date well, singleness is the training ground to give yourself fully to the Lord while you can All right, I've scattered some thoughts on dating throughout the message, but we'll wrap up our time by discussing a few more. And as a preface, dating is never explicitly mentioned in the Bible. So a lot of what I'm about to share is advice, maybe even sound advice, but not an authoritative word. Before you dismiss everything I'm about to say as dumb musings from a boomer pastor, I still think, I still think... There's much we can glean from the scriptures. While the Bible is relatively silent on dating, it does offer some guidelines, some principles. We need and we have biblical wisdom. After all, the scriptures are not silent on singleness and marriage. So from these teachings, we can stitch together a picture. We can get a shape of what dating should look like. Now, again, the suggestions made in this section are not exhaustive. We'll have more messages in the future to develop them more, but for tonight, we'll start with a few. First, it's in your notes, the purpose shapes the plan. The purpose shapes the plan. You know, if the purpose behind, say, your workout is to lose weight, then the exercises you do is going to be vastly different than if your purpose is to get shredded. So your purpose in dating will shape how you actually plan dates, how you date a person, how you pursue them, which means the time to figure this out is before it actually happens. You need something firm and objective, something clear because your emotions, your investment, your involvement, it will make you very subjective. As Paul has shown us, singleness is a good gift towards the goal of undivided devotion to the Lord. Next week, we will see marriage is a portrait of God and the gospel. So if dating is something in between singleness and marriage, then it should fall in line and be on a similar trajectory, right? It would be inconsistent to say singleness is for God, marriage is for God, but somehow dating isn't. It doesn't compute. Let me ask, do you understand the purpose of dating? Do you have a definition for it? If you need one, here's here's one plagiarized from Pastor David. He says, Christian dating is a mutual commitment between a Christian man and Christian woman to test their relationship for marriage. I should have put it in your notes. I'm sorry, so I'll repeat again. Christian dating is a mutual commitment between a Christian man and Christian woman to test their relationship for marriage. We will parse and examine the parts of uh, this definition in the following messages, but I'm giving it to you now so you have something to work with, something to think through. Second, community is the context. Community is the context. Now, for all the messiness and madness that was going on in the church at Corinth, at least they did what? They reached out. They had funny and quirky questions about sex, marriage, and singleness, and yet they were not afraid, not too embarrassed to ask Paul for help, for clarity. You see, community is the context to wade through the uncertain, the unknown, especially for matters as important as who you're going to spend the rest of your earthly life with. And I think this is so vital to stress today, because dating is relatively a new invention. It's a recent invention. You see, for the most part of human history, parents arrange marriages for their children. And as terrifying as that may sound to our modern ears, put your fear aside for a moment and you can see the case for it. You might not agree, but you can understand it. Parents. Being older, it also generally means they have more life experience under their belt, that they're wiser, that they are married themselves. They know what it takes to make it. And as a parent, I'm all for it. But what happened is after arranged marriage came courtship. So a suitor would visit the home of the lady he's interested in, and he would have to get to know the whole family to gain the approval of the parents and win the affection of the girl. But such an environment required him to be vetted on all fronts. Not just his relationship with his love interests, but also his social skills and interactions with the other family member. Which again, makes a lot of sense, because when you get married, you gain more than just a wife. You also get a bunch of in-laws, father-in-law, mother-in-law, siblings. Then in the last hundred years or so, dating became the preferred method of finding a spouse. And the great catalyst for dating was, get this, the invention of cars. The invention of cars. I'm serious. Automobiles allowed for mobility. And so instead of getting to know the girl in the home around the family, you could take the girl out of the home and away from the family. Now, I'm not saying that we should return to the golden days and make... All of our dates, a family affair, like just picnic as a happy bunch. But we do need to recognize that a lot of dating today cuts us off from the helpful insight of loved ones. You throw in digital technology and ads, and dating in the 21st century is even more of an isolated experience. Just think about that. Again, this doesn't mean road trips and coffee meets bagel are inherently bad but I think it is wise to recognize the challenges so we can supplement what modern dating is lacking in. Community, community. And I don't mean the pool of people to swipe left or right on, but fellow brothers and sisters who will function as your family. You and your significant other may be locked in on each other, but you need good friendships to encourage and keep you accountable. Double dates, participating in church events together, other couples to mentor you. The more set of godly eyes you can bring into your relationship, the better you will be for it. Look, we all have blinders. That's not the problem. The problem is if we don't have people to remove them for us. Third, stop shopping, start serving. Now what's interesting is, as significant as marriage is, we're never given an exhaustive list, all the nitty-gritty details on what to look for in a potential spouse. What's even more interesting is how we take on that mission by coming up with our own list. And what's interesting is what's on it. Sometimes this list is longer than the Constitution of the United States of America. You know what I'm talking about? That he has to be godly, but not self-righteous, confident, not vain. You know, he, he needs to be compassionate, yet he can't be emotional wreck. athletic, but not too muscular. I mean, the bar is set at Jesus minus one. Sometimes the bar is just straight up Jesus, right? <laughs> For guys, the list can be very short, right? She's Christian, and she's a supermodel, to which my response is usually, good luck, my friend. But I think both reveal that our approach to dating is so focused on me. We're shoppers, consumers, and such an inward bent is fertile soil, not for selflessness, but selfishness. I'm returning to dating apps, um, not because I hate them, but I think we we do need to understand what they're doing. You know, dating apps have a way of promoting this. Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying dating apps are sinful and shouldn't be used, but I do think it's influencing, rewiring how we relate with people. Because if we're not careful, it becomes this virtual meat market where people are being packaged and commodified for us. Again, I'm not telling you to delete the apps from your phone. Well, maybe some of you should. But at bare minimum, you do need to think soberly about the effect it is having upon your view of dating and people. To say that it does nothing is to only fool yourself. Yes, we need to evaluate a person's character, but beware of shopping. And to expand the illustration more, don't even go, say, to the grocery store when you're hungry. Okay, When you're starving, everything looks good. I'll give you a few seconds if you still think I'm talking about going to Trader Joe's. The idea is if you are not in a spiritually healthy place, if you are not doing well in your relationship with God, I think Paul has made clear that adding another individual will only complicate the matter, will only worsen the situation. So how do you know then when you're ready to date? Spiritually healthy enough. You know, this is a complex question and there are many factors to consider. But one criterion is simply whether you've been faithful to what God has prescribed for your singleness. Are you known by your devotion to the Lord? Do you have a reputation for being satisfied in God and a reputation for serving others? Not that we're doing things to impress people, but you also can't cover up genuine growth. Sure, someone can pretend, but if godliness is truly there, it will show itself. It is pretty hard to hide an oak of righteousness. My point is maturity is noticeable. So do those around you, especially those closest to you, affirm your decision to date because they are assured of your devotion to God. Use your singleness in such a way that when you join up with another, everyone already knows the direction the relationship is heading because all your relationships are directed towards God, not away from him. Plus, if you are satisfied in the Lord and serving others, you're going to be attracted to someone who's doing the same. So what better way to weed out who's serious about their faith than to pursue God? Fourth, and we need to end quickly. Fourth, the glory of God governs everything. The glory of God governs everything. To be frank, dating may not be in the Bible, but the glory of God certainly is. And it becomes both the atmosphere and the aim of our dating. Paul says the appointed time is short, dating is only temporary, of a temporary life. But the glory of God. Is forever. So it is worth weighing and filtering everything, including our romantic interests and ideas, through this consuming lens. Will it glorify God? Will the activities and plans we have in dating incline this person's heart more towards God? Will it help them appreciate the gospel? Will it cultivate a hunger for the Word? Will it make them more fervent in prayer? Will they love the church? Will they love Jesus more for being together with me rather than apart? And it applies even to specifics. You know, how can I ask this girl out in a manner that honors her, that upholds her dignity and glorifies God? How can I turn this guy down and reject him as graciously as possible, just as God has been gracious to me? And listen, people may not receive the message well or agree with your application, but the glory of God, the glory of God should be the engine, the starting point, the main motivation for how we enter, interact, think through, handle, and even end a dating relationship. We'll elaborate on the dynamics in subsequent messages, but I want to end here because there is no standard formula or one size fits all to dating. It may look very different from couple to couple. You now, how long do we date for? Who pays for the meal? When do we meet each other's families? We can work out the particulars, but what should be home based? What should be our compass and guide is the glory of God. That is what singleness and marriage are about, and that is what dating is about. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us a bigger view. Of our relationships, a grand view of singleness, because it is a gift from a glorious God. It is not something to be wasted or to be spent upon selfish desires, but it is to be handled and stewarded in a way that shows Christ is supreme, that your grace is sufficient. And so help us, Lord. Lord, I know that there are those who are bogged down, who are tired from this particular season of life or disheartened because things are not going the way that they had planned or envisioned. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them with the truths of Scripture, that they would find their footing upon the foundation of your Word. And for those that perhaps are cavalier or even apathetic about their singleness, I pray that You would reinvigorate them to show them that what they squander cannot be recaptured and instead then to be pressed, pushed, to use their singleness in a way that would redeem the time, in a way that would prepare them for whatever you would have in store for them in the future, marriage or not. God, may we be found faithful because you are a faithful God. Lord, warm our hearts that we might cherish Christ so much so that he would become our all-consuming passion and ambition. Lord, may this be true in all regards of our life. We pray for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.